0: Hi, and welcome to the White Hill podcast series. Uh, my name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at White Hill, and we're glad that you've uh, chosen to listen to one of the podcast messages today. Our prayer is that you would be challenged and inspired to take the next steps in your journey with God as you listen to this message. Uh, if you want to keep in touch with more things that are happening at White Hill, head to our website at whitehill.church. And you can have subscribed to our YouTube channel. Enjoy this message now. Let me read John chapter 1 and we're starting at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess but confess freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him again. Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness make straight the way for the lord now the pharisees who had been sent questioned him why then do you baptize if you are not the messiah nor elijah nor the prophet i baptize with water john replied but one among you stand sorry but among you stands one who you do not know he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me i myself did not know him but the reason i came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to israel then john gave this testimony i saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him and i myself did not know him but The one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one.
1: Good morning, Church. Hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. Has anyone packed up their trees yet? No? Ah. I definitely would have if I had the energy after (laughs) yesterday. But maybe that is a job uh, for today. But I'm excited to be here sharing with you. I was sort of reflecting on this Christmas. It's been a little bit different for me. Um, Some of you may know my wife, Julia, is off in America with her family, so. Um, I did have my parents and my sister here to celebrate with, but it's felt a little bit different. And then as I'm preparing for um, this message, which is on the testimony of John the Baptist, I was reminded of the incredibly painful process that it was to get Julia in the country in the first place from the U.S. and get her a visa. And I'm not sure if you are familiar with the process, but they really do treat you like a criminal if you're trying to get into this country. And um, We had to have uh, testimonies from us, ourselves and our friends, of course. We had to have all of our text messages from the time we even started, even before we were dating. We had to have all of our emails, all of our receipts from every time we'd gone out to eat somewhere. We even had a list of household roles and who does what, like who does the dishes and who does the gardens and everything. Um, they even made her go down to the police station, have her fingerprints taken and sent to the FBI in America. So it was a pretty intense process. But like I said, amongst all of that, we needed formal testimonies from friends and families and from ourselves to say that we are a genuine and ongoing relationship. Those are the words we had to keep using, genuine and ongoing. And these were formal legal documents. Like I was asking people to sign statutory declarations that had to be witnessed at a JP to go and prove that we are a genuine and legitimate relationship. But you know, the government is trusting in the testimonies of people as legitimate evidence because testimonies and stories are the ways that we still today seek to understand and reveal truth. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the testimony of John the Baptist. He's he's brought in by the Jewish leaders for questioning. um, And he's in a sense he's put on record to formally and truthfully testify this legitimate and ongoing relationship about this person that is coming, whose name is Jesus, and the nature of Jesus as to who he is. And we see as well, John the Baptist is incredibly faithful in the face of opposition. He's faithful and he's a fruitful disciple of Jesus, even to the point of his own martyrdom later in life. So what I want to do this morning is just look at three sort of essential practices of you know Christian discipleship to Jesus that we see from the life of John the Baptist. And hopefully this, this morning can just be a chance for you to reflect, just to check in, see how you've gone this year, and maybe to look forward to next year with a sense of you know, hopeful expectation as to how you too can be more faithful and more fruitful as you follow Jesus. So, like we said, we're going to be in John the Gospel for a little while now, well into next year. And this is our new series here, Believe. Um, We've taken that line from John's um, own purpose statement for writing this. He says, um, he writes these things that you may believe, um, testifying about Jesus. So we hope that you can find life in Jesus and believe just as John is trying to achieve. So if you've got your Bibles, um, I would encourage you to have them out for the next however many weeks. We're in John. Get familiar with it, um, and I hope that God does some, some good things in your life through that. So we'll start in verse 19. It says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but free, confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And I think first, before we go into anything, we've just got to clarify, uh, there's a lot of Johns in the New Testament, and it can get very confusing. Um, so I thought the two that are sort of referenced uh, in these passages, uh, we'll just clarify who they are before we go forward. So the first one is John writing this gospel account. That is the Apostle John. He reveals himself in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was Jesus' closest, most dearest disciple. He was the one that Jesus was most intentional with. He had the most um, opportunity to learn and to grow and to be with Jesus. And Jesus seemed to trust him beyond all of his other disciples. Even at his own crucifixion, Jesus says, Here's my mother, John, would you go and take care of her? Which has incredible significance in that culture. So when we talk about John, we're most likely talking about this John, the Apostle John, the disciple of Jesus. But then we're also going to hear about John the Baptist. So John the Apostle is now handwriting. He's writing down the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist doesn't mean he was just a good Baptist boy, but it means that you know, he practiced baptism as one of the foundational, um, I guess, sacraments or practices of the Christian church. So John grows up around Jesus. He was likely Jesus' cousin, a relative of him. Um, He was a bit of a strange guy. He wore camel skins and ate bugs and honey. Um, I spoke about this with the youth not long ago, and in their language, he's a bit of a rare unit. I'm not sure if you've heard that term before, but uh, he's a little bit strange, a little bit rare, a bit different. Um, But his rarity uh, did not get in the way of his ministry because he really did have an incredible impact even before Jesus came and started his public ministry. So the Apostle John, now writing about the testimony of John the baptizer, as I'd like to call him, because Baptists can have a bit of confusion there, John the baptizer. And John the baptizer is wearing weird clothes, he's yelling out about Jesus, he's down by the river, and more and more people start to go and see what's going on. And he's calling them to repentance, and he's baptizing, and his ministry starts to grow, and he actually has his own disciples that come along with him. And this, of course, upset the religious leaders, because now there's something out of place, there's something that they're not comfortable with, what's going on, so they send these priests and these Levites to go and question him, and that's where we just read from before, that's the first part of his response, he says, I am not the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah. Now I think it's important to recognize that this is not just a statement of identity, this is not just like me saying, you know, I'm not Frank or I'm not Bill, but it's actually also a statement of personal significance in light of the extreme and ultimate significance of the person that he's actually testifying about, that is, the Messiah. And later on, we actually read that, you know, John said he wasn't even worthy of untying the sandals of Jesus, a job reserved for slaves. So immediately, in response to the religious-leaded question, John denies any sense of personal significance and recognizes that he is not the Messiah, He's not the king, and in comparison to Jesus, he's actually more lowly than a slave. The reason why I want to pause here for a moment and just looking at how John deflects the interest and the glory away from himself is because I think we're trained in our culture to do the complete opposite. We're trained to think about ourselves first and put ourselves on, the, I guess, the highest throne of significance and importance in our life. And whether you may agree with that statement or not, all of the uh, the subtexts of culture and the advertising and the marketing are training us to think in this way, to do what is best for us, what's going to bring us the most success and honor, what's most comfortable and easiest for us, because we start to believe that we're actually the most significant and important person in the universe. And I've read a bit of uh, Mark Sayers. He's a pastor and cultural commentator, and he comments on this attitude by saying this. He says, Today we want the kingdom without the king, meaning we want the rewards of a good and right and perfect kingdom. We want the happiness and satisfaction and pleasure. We want the fulfillment and the prosperity that comes from kingdom life, but we don't actually want to submit ourselves to the authority of the king because we want to reserve that spot for ourselves. And then this attitude we get caught up is one of you know, bitterness and disappointment and angst when things start to inevitably fall apart, when we're not trusting in Jesus. Because we're relying on our own wisdom and we're relying on what we think is best for us and we're not actually letting him control our lives. And then things fall apart and we go, "Wow, God, what's going on? I think ultimately we know that Jesus is the source of life, and He knows what is best for us, but we can sometimes see the principles of His kingdom as restricting or controlling, like they're somehow imposing on our own sense of life or freedom. But I think the complete opposite is true. John's showing us in his testimony that we can't just desire the kingdom and not submit to the king. Rather, we need to desire the kingdom and submit to the king. And we need to deny our own personal significance and actually give Him the authority over our lives. This is the first practice I think is being neglected often in the contemporary Christian life. And I think for us to reflect on this for how we've gone this year and how do we look forward to next year is really important as we form this attitude of submission to Jesus' kingship over our lives, recognizing that we aren't the most significant being in the universe. John wanted people to experience fullness and satisfaction. He's not taking away anything from them, but he's actually offering them and saying, you know, life to the full cannot be obtained in autonomy from God. And I think I can understand at this point, if you're not a follower of Jesus, going, you know, I already have the government telling me what to do with my body and my life and laws and all those things, why would I need more authority? Because we've got this sort of distrust and skeptic, I guess, mentality against authority at the moment, but if you think about it this way, if you were lucky enough to grow up um, in a good family, a loving family, then you've trusted in the authority of your parents. You've trusted that they will pay the bills and keep a roof over your head. You've trusted that they will protect you. You've trusted that they will actually love you and care for you and be good parents for you. And even maybe the rules frustrated you at times, you trusted that they had your best intentions in mind. And only because of this, when you were young, you were able to live and laugh and play with freedom and not have to worry about what you're going to eat or where you're going to live. And that is trusting in a good authority for your life. And in the same way, when we have Jesus as our king and we trust in the authority of his kingship, we have the most powerful being in complete control of our lives. We don't have to worry anymore about what we will eat or what we will wear or where we will live, but Jesus is in complete control. He is sovereign and his authority and kingship over our life has our best intentions for our good and for his glory. And that's how perfect good kingship authority can look like in our lives. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is from this testimony of John, what areas of my life have I tried to take over the throne of? How am I trying to wrestle back that power and seek the fruit of the kingdom and all these good things in my life without actually submitting myself daily to the authority of the king? That's the first practice to reflect on. The second one is holding future expectations and assumptions lightly. When I was in um, high school, I was doing quite well with all my other subjects except for maths. Is anybody not quite the math brain here? Yep. I just—I didn't like it, I didn't like the teacher, I didn't like the class, and things weren't going super well. So I decided to get a, um, a tutor, and I messaged a guy who had graduated a few years before me, um, and without stereotyping math geniuses, he looked like a math genius. So, you know, skinny build, clean shaven, neat hair, glasses, always dressed you know, immaculately, um, and incredibly intellectual. So we organized a first session to catch up and he said he would meet me at the top of the school where all the parents come and pick up the kids. Um, so I went up there to meet him and he was going to take me back to do this study and I stood there for a while and he just, he wasn't there and I waited another 10 minutes and he still wasn't there and another 10 minutes and I was like, for a smart guy, this guy's not very punctual. So I sent him a text and he goes, I'm here, what, what are you doing? Like, are you, are you coming? Are you going to get in the car? I was like, What do you mean? So I picked up the phone and I called him and I don't know if you've ever had these moments where you're trying to find somebody on the phone and you can hear their voice through the phone but then all of a sudden you hear their voice in real life as well. And I look in front of me and there's this guy and he's got long, messy hair down here, a beard down to his chest, dressed in like super casual clothes. I completely missed him and he'd been standing there waiting for me the entire time, because I just assumed he was going to look the same as what he did when I saw him a few years ago at school. And I think when it comes to um, expectations and assumptions about the future for us, we can hold so tightly to what we hope to see or what we expect to come about, that we actually are sometimes blinded to what God is revealing to us in that moment. We hold so tightly to everything that we expect that we fail to submit ourselves to the unique will of the king. And we're going to see this now in verse 21 and 22. So the Jewish leaders come and question John, but they're not actually asking much about Jesus or what that means for them. They just go straight into it. They said, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no, finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What did you say about yourself? And then John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, he says, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And you've got to remember, John's been drawing crowds and he's, he's creating a stir. He's calling people to repent and be baptized and the Lamb of God is here. The Jewish leaders aren't really concerned about who that Lamb of God or who that Messiah might be. They just want to put John in their neat little timeline of everything that they've read from the Old Testament and expected to happen and assumed will come about. First, they asked him, are you Elijah? And it was common understanding that Elijah, when taken up um, from earth without experiencing death in the Old Testament, that he was still alive and then he was going to come back and sort of precede Jesus as a prophet. So they were waiting for that. But he said, no. Then they asked if he was the prophet. And it's likely a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where it talks about this prophet like Moses that would come and would accompany Jesus. But he says, no, I'm not that either. And then they finally ask him, well, who are you? And all he says, because he's not trying to point people towards himself, but he's trying to point them towards Jesus, is he says, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So he doesn't really answer their question. He just deflects again to the glory of Christ. John is emphatically saying, it doesn't matter who I am. I don't have much significance of my own. I'm just a voice crying out about Jesus. And he very cleverly uses Isaiah 40 verse 3 as he quotes that to connect with this Jewish audience. He says, I'm just a tool. I'm a a mouthpiece crying out about something that's more important than just your timeline and expectations. And I think for some of us standing here on the cusp of a new year, we are holding to assumptions about what next year will look like. We're holding on to expectations. And we're holding so tightly that maybe we haven't even stopped to ask God or even to consider what's next year going to look like. What are you trying to reveal to me next year? What are you trying to do in my life? When we submit to the authority of the King, we can't expect that our life's now going to look the same. Because God's going to come in and He's going to mess it all up for our good and for His glory. I set this challenge for us today to spend some time in considering in what areas I'm going to try to take that throne back from Christ, in what areas I'm going to try to hold so tightly to my assumptions of next year that I've actually missed what God's trying to reveal to me. What if it's the assumption that things in your job are just going to get better? It's been hard this year. There's been hard relationships, toxic people, or whatever it is, and it's just going to get better. But God's actually wanting you to consider maybe there's another pathway. Maybe there's another role for you that he's opening up. Or what if it's the assumption that that neighbor across the road that you haven't spoken to in 12 months is just a grouchy old loser and he doesn't want to talk to you. But in reality, he's another broken, hurting person that would love somebody to go and engage with them. And this may be hard to hear, but what if the assumption that 2022 is miraculously going to be better than 2021 is not actually true? Maybe it's blinding you from the reality that God wants to form something deep in your character and in your soul, a sense of resilience, a sense of strength and faith in Him. And what if until that point that you actually engage with what God's trying to do in the crucible of your struggles, that God may leave you there instead of you just turning to bitterness and anger? What are our assumptions blinding us from in this moment? I truly believe that God is at work in each of our lives. But we need to make a practice of discerning what he's actually up to so that we can get on board with what he wants to do. And even though these things may provide security and a sense of, you know, okay, I've got everything in a line, I know what's going to happen, and it you know, can ease that anxiety. Any plans that are not divinely woven into God's plan for our life are going to be fleeting and unfulfilling. So we need to recognize what God is up to. So desire the kingdom, submit to the king, hold those expectations lightly and loosely, having faith that God can revise and redirect for his glory and for your good. And then I think we can also recognize here that our first and most primary task as disciples of Jesus is to boldly prepare others for the day that they meet him. We're going to skip down to verse 29 because there's a lot in this passage, but it says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man, comes after, a man comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. He said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And this is such... Beautiful imagery from John. He's crying out, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And, and reminding us of that old covenantal system of animal sacrifice for the atonement of sins. Where God's people, when they had sinned, must have an animal slaughtered to atone, to pay for that sin. And now Jesus comes onto the scene and is willingly becomes the lamb of God, the slaughtered lamb of God. Paying the penalty and atoning for our own sin. Then John says the lamb has surpassed him. John actually willingly gave away his disciples that he had spent time investing in to Jesus. Jesus' first disciples weren't even his own. He sort of just taxed them from John. And John says, that's that's okay. You take them because you have surpassed me. It's not about me. It's about you. And that's where they're going to be best. Then he testifies about the spirit coming like a dove and remaining on Jesus and that he is God's chosen one. And again, he's connecting with these Jewish leaders, quoting from the scroll of Isaiah verse 42.1. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, I always find John's writing just powerful and beautiful, but I think what I want to encourage us in this morning is to recognize the boldness at which he makes these statements crying out Christ the Messiah the lamb of God the God's chosen one and it's really challenged me sort of as I've been preparing for this because it's not easy to make statements like that in this world where we've got to be PC and not you know impose on other people's truths or opinions can't you know, say things like sin or that, you know, you've got to have an issue with sin or needs to be dealt with. And John, knowing that the climate was much more hostile then to now, just goes on and makes these bold statements anyways. And I think often as a church, we can move towards sort of this victim mentality where we sort of feel like you know, we're a minority and people don't want to hear us or you know, we're going to get comments back or whatever it is. And I wish I could find this quote, but I remember a secular writer saying that the church of Christ often acts like a small oppressed minority but it's actually one of the biggest movements in the world, if not the biggest movement in the world. It's shaped governments and systems. Millions and millions and millions of people have come to know and follow Jesus and had their lives transformed, but sometimes we're worried about what that message will mean for us in our social interactions. A pastor from the Gold Coast that I heard preach once, he said, we've got the ball, right? He went on to say this. He says, the gospel... That is more powerful than 10,000 volcanoes erupting in a teacup. If we have this message, the message that, was cap- that captivated our hearts and dances on our lips, then we've got the ball. We are the ones playing offense. The church isn't playing D. We're not playing defense, right? We're not just trying to survive and let the enemy not sort of push us back further and further. But we are the ones with the powerful news of Jesus. We have the ball and it's our role to boldly run that down the center field. And I want to encourage you, maybe this is the year for you, where you decide to step out in boldness and not worry about what the response might be or if that person is going to be awkward or not talk to you or say something nasty back to you, but to boldly declare the truth of Jesus and to assume that people actually do want to hear this message and to find fullness and life in Jesus, to have their sin dealt with, an issue that only Jesus can deal with. What if this year you made an intentional effort to articulate that message more clearly for others? I know for me, I can sometimes be more passionate about converting people from Google Maps to Waze. I don't know if you've ever used that app before, but it's another app that shows where the police are when you're driving. And I can, you know, passionately get into those conversations. This is why you need to do it. But then when it comes to actually sharing about what Jesus has done in my life with others, it doesn't quite come across with that same intentionality or passion. I know many of us are doing that at the moment with you know, our stance on the vaccine mandate or whatever it is, but what if we you know, redirected that passion like John, took on that boldness and said, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. That's what we can get excited about. John was so excited about it that you know, he was prepared to have his head cut off and put on a platter and he didn't care because he knew his sins had been washed clean and that true life was found in Jesus even beyond death, in this life. Who needs to hear that in your circles? Jesus Christ, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the only one who can deal with that issue. And if you're here today and haven't accepted King Jesus, that's that's priority number one, that's first step. Step into the freedom of eternal life. The freedom of actually having good governing authority over your life for an eternity. And I promise that he's going to transform your existence beyond anything else that you could ever experience in this life. And if you already have accepted Jesus, then just consider today, how have you gone with submitting to his kingship this year? And what does next year look like for you? If you're gonna make a formal testimony about the ongoing and genuine nature of your relationship with Jesus, what is that gonna say? You have to sign off a document, the end of this year, the end of next year, what are you gonna write? Will it say that you submitted to Jesus' kingship in every aspect of your life? That you submitted all your assumptions and expectations to him for review and redirection? That he transformed your thought life, your attitudes, your desires? your behavior, your speech? Will it say that with boldness you proclaimed Christ as the Lamb of God? What's that testimony going to say for you? And if not those things, where can you begin moving in the right direction today? See, John the Baptist's testimony, it's a powerful statement of the nature of Jesus, but it's now an encouragement for us, for a church to walk forward in faith and obedience and boldness and see the kingdom break through in our lives in the lives of the city and this world in ways we haven't seen before. So I'm going to pray that God can encourage us through his word today and that he can help form these things in us into next year. Let me pray for you all. Jesus, we thank you for your power, the, the same power we reflect on in the birth story, God becoming man, coming in unexpected ways, ways that people wouldn't have assumed and ways that many missed. But Jesus, you came as a good king, a servant king, A loving king, a sacrificial king, not one that holds your power and authority over our heads to manipulate us or to oppress us, but to release us into freedom and into life to the full. So I pray, Jesus, in those spaces in our lives where we are trying to redeem, where we're trying to take back that authority, trying to replace you on the throne with ourselves, would you help us to recognize those spaces? and help us to submit to your lordship and your kingship over those areas. And we pray, Jesus, that in this sort of cultural climate that we live in, and, you know, the sense of opposition and uncertainty, that you would help us to march forward with boldness in face of that adversity and say, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the God's chosen one, has come to save and redeem the world. Give us that boldness, I pray, and may we see lives saved and souls transformed for your kingdom and for your Son's name. We pray that you help us do this by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you live locally here in the Ipswich region, we would love to invite you to come and join us in person uh, here at one of our Sunday gatherings at Whitehill. For more information on our services or our ministries, head on over to our website at whitehill.church. If you're interested also in taking next steps in your relationship with Jesus, please also at our website, hit the connect button and let us know where you're at. We would love to catch up with you, either over a coffee or on a phone call to chat with you about where you're at. We hope you've enjoyed watching this message. And we pray that God would continue to bless you as you seek to seek Him in your daily life. God bless.